This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations with people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Sawyer's Bay, Dunedin, and I am joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well indeed. Another week in the new job. Well, yes, but I haven't started yet because, of course, we've just had Auckland anniversary weekend that gives all of us in the Bay plenty of the day off today. And uh, so, yeah, starting tomorrow, I'm uh, week three in my job and I start working remotely. <laughs> So <laughs> I'm not unhappy. I've and got the, a lot of work to do. And the job's evolved a bit from when you started? Yep. Now I'm uh, creating the education strategy for Natiawa and how we can flow that out into our community in the Eastern Bay. Uh, and uh, and I start work on that specific bit of work tomorrow. So I'm really excited about that. That's exciting. It's really neat to be involved in a project that draws on all of that work from my from uh, my doctorate work. Indeed. Yeah, and awesome. who are we introducing today? It is my great pleasure to introduce Simon McCallum, who is a very interesting person, <laughs> Simon. Simon is a game academic. I didn't even know there was such a thing, but when you explained what it is, I realised there actually is. Um, and uh, and also a medieval siege weaponry expert and creator and traditional weaponry created the traditional way, which that was awesome. Um, traveller of the world, a traveller of New Zealand, and it's really lovely to have you here. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for thanks for having me. Welcome, Simon. Where are you, Simon? So I'm I'm currently in my bubble in Mosgiel, uh, in Dunedin, um, when. When we came back to New Zealand in 2018, because we're in Norway up until that point, um, my wife's one condition on moving back to New Zealand was she didn't care where I got a job so long as we moved to Dunedin. And so I got a job in Wellington and we moved to Dunedin and out <laughs> here to Mosgiel, which is near her parents. So, yeah, no, that's why I'm in, we're, we're, we're firmly ensconced in our, in our house in, in Mosgiel. And your commute to Wellington? Yes, I commute to Wellington. I so when we first started doing this, I was doing a a ten four kind of. I'd be up for ten days and down for four days um, during teaching periods, uh, and the principle was that I would do big chunky work life balance. Right. So when I was in Wellington, I would be the monastic academic, where all I would do is work. Right. So I didn't live in Wellington. I worked in Wellington. So when I was there, I was doing those you know crazy academic days of 14 hours a day because you have zero other commitments right and then you know i do that for a block and then when i was at home i had to commit to the family and not to be doing any work 
right? So there were no arguments about, you know, oh, I have to, because no, 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 in Dunedin, I'm in the, the family wins every argument about what needs to be done. And because when I'm in Wellington, there are no arguments because I can't go and pick up a sick kid because I'm in Wellington. And, but because you are a game academic, does playing games with the kids count as work? <laughs> Well, yeah, that's, have you been sprung for that some one? Some of it does, yeah, yeah. No, some some of it absolutely does. Um, so when we first went into lockdown, um, so um, our our university um did the oh we don't know how to go online, so they paused us for five weeks. Now I'd already told my students that we're going online. I'd already done the practice run and the lectures, saying, well, I know we're going to be locked down, so let's just practice, make sure we've got everything. So I was ready to go, absolutely ready to go. And the university said, no, you're not allowed to do any lecturing for five weeks. And so in the lecture slots, uh, instead of lecturing, I had my son and I play Minecraft and live stream it during the lecture <laughs> slot, slot and introduce it to Zen. Hi, it's me. This is our normal lecture slot. And we're playing Minecraft. And, and so, yeah, I played games with my son as my lecture content for my course. So, you know, yeah, you find ways. So then as the bubbles and now the traffic lights, does that mean that you're not commuting? Um, at the moment, no. Uh, my my next um, plan was to actually head up on the twenty um, second of February, um, but I'm keeping that as well. I've booked the tickets. I'm just keeping it open at the stage, um, partly because I don't live in Wellington, and you know I was staying with a with a, a retired colleague, um, and I'd stayed at the Backpackers, um, self isolating at a Backpackers is really not probably going to work. Um, and so, um, I, if I got caught COVID in Wellington, I'd have to go into isolation in whatever isolation facility they have there because they won't let me on a plane while I've got a positive test. Right. So, um, so I, I, I would be stuck and I'd be stuck away from family. So currently I'm, I'm working remotely. Uh, I'm in the lucky position that because well, yes, my, my gaming students, certainly, because they're all gamers, they all have fabulous internet at home, right? <laughs> I never have to worry about the connectivity. I never have to worry if they, do they know how to set up Discord? Are they able to follow me on Twitch? It's kind of, no, no, I've got a Twitch channel and a Discord. That's that's right in their ballpark, right? They understand this completely. Um, in fact, some of the students were saying it's quite nice that I was streaming on Twitch because they'd be watching Twitch and a notification would pop up. Simon <laughs> has started streaming so they could switch over to my lecture. Better get to that lecture. <laughs> Click. Yeah. <laughs> ah, I'm in the lecture. So, so yeah, I'm, I'm lucky that my students are very online. And so, um, I mean, we did, we did some assessment, um, um, last year, so the, the our faculty of education assessed, you know, how many students were dropping out and how who wasn't attending and who weren't submitting things. And they had like a 30% dropout once they went to, once they kind of went into online teaching. Uh, in my game course, I had one out of the 60 students drop out. So, you know, um, my, my cohort were, were in and, and engaged. So, so yeah, I, I'm, I'm lucky I can do this. And also, because I've been teaching remotely to Norway for the last three and a half years, I've also got quite good at remote teaching and it's a skill you develop over time. I think you can get better and better at it if you practice it. Um, and, you know, the analogy I used with, with some of the other lecturers is if you suddenly asked everybody to do a musical opera of their lecture and start singing, 
most of the students would think it was horrible and would immediately stop listening, right? Because, you know, my singing voice isn't great. But if you've practiced and you've done your work and you've built the material and you've got that ability, then maybe a musical opera of your lecture is okay. Um, it's just that at the, we, when we switched hard, a bunch of people didn't have the skill. And so unfortunately, a lot of their content didn't work well when online. Um, so yeah, no, I, so yeah, I'm lucky I can do this remotely. Um, uh, my, my boss is also reasonably comfortable that I'm, I'm able to engage people online. And teaching people in Norway, has that been kind of a bit weird, for, you know, during the pandemic, we're going through different cycles of the, the, the pandemic? It has been interesting, um, having two different versions of the pandemic running, in, in different sort of cycles because you know um on a friday night when i uh, my lectures were like 10 till midnight um so on a friday night i'd get an update from norway and i'd be teaching and we'd have a discussion of where they were at in their cycles of pandemic um and i so yeah that that was that was sort of unusual so when so my contract actually i was supposed to do this for two years my contract came up in june um just after the first round of lockdowns and i said to norway hey um you're going to you're going to online teaching right i know i'm remote and i've been doing this for the last two years and that that i was supposed to kind of you know, stop do you want to keep me on because you know everybody's having to do what i do so maybe i can help um and they did and so they kept me on but so for me it was no change but for all the students and all the other staff and sort of everybody came to my party Right, because I'd been doing this for a while, and and you know, I, I'm going back to, I was using an MP3 recorder in '98 to do my first '99 uh, to do my first year lectures and hand code my RSS feed to podcast it, um, sort of 23 years ago. Um, so you know, I've been podcasting lectures for a while um, at, at this point. So you know, for me, it was everybody suddenly arrived at my party, and it was kind of oh. I have to introduce you to everything and tell you how it works. And yeah, so it was a bit strange that everybody was suddenly doing what I was doing. But it, it, yeah, for me, it was it was interesting and fun. And, and the students liked the fact that I was very engaging and very engaged in what I was doing. And I wasn't complaining about it because a lot of the lecturers didn't like doing what they were doing. And that comes across in their presentation. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have, now this is something different. Let's have a Bardcore Pumped Up Kicks. Why this one, Simon? So <laughs> I picked up um, Bardcore during lockdown. <laughs> I, I found Bardcore. And one of the neat things, because I've got that interest in medieval history, and, uh, and so I, I, I've been to medieval fears and, and doing the medieval thing. Um, and I found that Bardcore was actually pretty good as working music because it would give you that feeling of the song right because it has the tune but it's played in a less jarring way and also the words don't necessarily get in your head because they are more archaic and different so they're not trying to compete with what you're doing so um in the same way that some people listen to like hardcore screaming rock while they code because it's just noise. Um, this was a kind of familiar sound and familiar notes. And so, you know, it, I, and Pumped Up Kicks is, is kind of a, 
a, a modern song, but done with an ancient lyric and an ancient sound, just as was a nice mix of those of my my history. getting research done, Simon? 
Um, trying to. I mean, I've got my my. Well, the thing that I want to do, unfortunately, might require a book. So I think I just have to write a book. Um, because every time I start, there are too many things that I need to bring in. Um, so I'm I I've got a few things. I know I've got a couple of PhD. Well, I've got five PhD students. So you know I'm generating research through them in some sense. But my own personal things, I'm actually it, it, there's a lot of education stuff that I want to do differently. Uh, and so because through the the games games for education, I've I've I I have rethought of education as a game because education is the gamification of learning, right? Learning is fun, and games put rules around the fun activity. Um, so kicking a ball is fun, and you add rules and become soccer. So learning is fun, and you add rules and becomes education. And so education is a gamification of learning. It's just a badly designed game by people who weren't good game designers. Um, and so I've started thinking about how you how you would redesign the game of learn of, of education. Uh, and so I do a lot of things where I do a lot of crazy stuff around agency and giving students more choice and changing the way we do assessment. And, and you know, one of the ones I'm wanting to do this trimester, trying to get the research around it right, is things like um, in the exam, you get to nominate another student. And for your week and you nominate your weakest question and you can nominate another student and you get halfway between your grade and their grade on that question. Yep. So you identify that you're weak at something and you say who you'd actually ask that question on, right? Because of course you're not supposed to know everything yourself. That would be ridiculous. You're supposed to know some things and have a network of people that you would ask when a question you didn't know came around. And you should be able to say to people, hey, I think it's this, but I'm not sure. I think we should ask Jane. She'll know. Right? So trying to find ways of, of formalizing that network knowledge rather than personal knowledge. Um, and interesting, talking to the faculty education, um, there's interest there in actually doing this from a, a Tao Māori perspective of, of bringing in a group with you to an exam rather than just assessing you as an individual. And so we're thinking of, you know, are there ways of of teaching around profiles? So you, when you teach knowledge, you also attach different aspects of the course to a, a profile, a persona, an avatar. And you say, this is the kind of person who would be an expert in this area, right? So you teach the area connected to a, to a person. And then when you go to the exam for one or two of your questions, you can give an answer and say, yeah, but. I'm not sure about this. I would ask um, Titify, right? She'll she'll know, right? So so you you identify a person, or you identify that 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 persona that's been created as an expert in that area, and so you get bonus credit for understanding the network of people that you would need to work with, rather than just trying to answer everything yourself as if you're an island. You'd have to have a way of stopping them all just nominating the one genius in the class well you see the, the, the thing is that you don't necessarily have to do that right um because you know it, it like yes there may be the occasional genius in the class but if you're looking at saying if you, you, you if you start at the beginning of the semester saying look this is going to happen so it's probably good if you get a study group 
know what each other are good at and know when one of you has studied this particularly well. So you can nominate that person if that particular question comes up. Right? So you treat it as an incentive for collaborative study work. As education, um, and, you know, we, so, so, yeah, we have a really weird relationship with, with group work, don't we? we? We sort of like put them into groups, but then treat them either as a single group, single group that can't be split apart, and then we worry about where's their individual work within it. We haven't really understood that sort of collective so I, learning. I, yeah, you know, so, so it, it may be influenced by my time in Norway, right? Because I spent 11 years there, and it's a collective society. So, um, and I taught far too many courses, but um, in almost all my courses, all the work was group work. I never did individual work, right? It was that, that like, there was one course that had individual work in it, um, but everything was seen as group work. And that was just considered perfectly normal. And I did a whole bunch of things of, you know, you have the group and then you report on what you did and you report on the differentiation and the groups can decide that someone deserves a higher grade. And I will take that into consideration, right? So you can have a centroid grade and then shift people around. And if you do enough, like, so in, in our first year course, you were put into four groups in the 12 weeks. Right? So you kept changing group. And by doing that, and by having this kind of adjustable individual from the center of the group, you're able to actually differentiate the students perfectly comfortably by the end of the trimester. Um, I also created a, a six animal um, model for group collaboration. So I have a very specific way of running groups and I do it in groups of six and, and I use six animals to give them roles to play. So I use my gaming role-playing background and say, if you're going to work in a group, the group needs people to do certain roles, right? So like I come from a D&D background, so, you know, fighters and clerics and wizards and thieves and right. So, so I had those sorts of role-playing mode um, in my group work. And so I've created Six animals. I don't know if I should go into this, but I've created six animals. Um, a, a, a bear and a wolf, right? The bear is the group leader, and they talk when no one else is speaking. The wolf is the group manager, and they tell the bear to shut up when the bear's been talking too much. <laughs> and they also make sure everyone collaborates, right? So everybody's participating. Um, I have a cat and a puppy. The cat is my risk-averse person. They look for things that will break and will make the project fail. And kind of constantly, what might be considered negative, but they're actually there to remove barriers, right? They're looking for things that will trip you up so that you can identify them and remove them. Uh, and the puppy is the enthusiast who supports every idea, no matter how crazy, and wants to add to it and wants to make it better. And it's going to be great. And you're never alone when you've got a puppy in your group because they're going to they're gonna back your idea, even if it's insane, right? Um and that can be reassuring. So you can come up with an insane idea and at least someone's in your corner, right? Because um, good job. Uh, and then I have a owl and a rabbit. The owl is my process person. They make sure you hit the timings that you're supposed to do and, you know, meetings run on time. And if you're going, if people are having, spending too much time on something, the owl comes in and says, no, no, we need to move on. And that just shuts everything down and you move forward. And then the rabbit's the facilitator that makes sure you the group has everything it needs and that rabbit is the one who talks to me as the coordinator so they have the ground and they have the ground truth and so they can control communication between me and the group i won't talk to the leaders right i won't talk to the bears i won't talk to the wolves they're busy leading the group i'll talk to the designated um, communicator which is the rabbit and so i try and give everybody a, a status role 
and something they can do in communication. And so it's about all of these roles are important to the group. And by playing your role well, you facilitate group communication and you can get moving much faster than everybody just sits back and waits for someone to take those roles. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokunui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, nā arohanui kia koutou, kotahoho. You always stay beautiful stars, love the verses. Hope wherever you are, it's happening this journey that all on to be very, very stable and illuminate for you. Who you are, provenate perfect, making it cute. Now I know that for us all the last more than two years have been time, great uncertainty and change, instability, transformation and a whole series of revolutions taking place both within surrounding all of this course is part of that process of co-evolution we are undertaking in an infinite web with all life to whom we are related and to whom we are indebted all the lives going before ours making our life possible and of course for whom we are responsible all the lives that surround us now the lives waiting to be born we can do our best to make this place Better and better and better for all of them and for ourselves. How wonderful. And of course we're all doing this in different ways. We're all contributing something completely unique. A unique gift, a unique skill to this world. And particularly at times like this, when things are changing, are uncertain, it's so important that we draw on our knowledge of our own gifts and the gifts of others and perhaps discover and acknowledge new gifts, new gifts in others. It's also so important to remember that we're all experiencing this collective experience individually and uniquely. Each of us consciousness which has unique form over our lifetime, despite the fact that we are all part of the one conscious spark of the one great infinite universe. Our own individual consciousness, the neural pathways in our brain, chemical makeup of our bloodstream, all these things which fluctuate and reformulate themselves throughout our lives, all the electrical patterning through our mind, all of these things create and recreate who we are at each moment. And it's so important to remember that that differs from person to person, from life form to life form every day. And whilst we may have one perception situation, another person who we feel that we know very well may have a different. And so at times like this, communication, compassion, giving one another the time and the space to share how we're feeling, share our perception, share our knowledge, share our understanding, share our visions for the future, share what we need, all these things. I've had a big learning recently that it's so important instead of assuming that I know the best way to help and support those I love, it's actually helpful to ask as well what what help and support and love they would like and what form that would most appropriately take with them. And also to acknowledge sometimes people don't know the kind of support that they need and that that's okay too. So I really hope for you, whatever is happening around you and wherever you are, that this time can be a time of really helpful learning growth for you. As much as we have to do our best to keep ourselves safe, to attempt to maintain aspects of our lives, to sustain ourselves. Also so important that we are giving ourselves that opportunity to slow down and go within and tune with ourselves and how we're feeling. Make sure that sacred grove within is visited, with its silence, peace, with its endless serenity. And for me, being part of the show is so helpful. So I want to say a big thank you to Sam and the whole Blowing Bubbles team for having me. All of you having me. And I look forward to talking. Thanks so much. Kakite. You are listening to Blowing Bubbles. We're talking with Simon McCallum.
So, I mean, I really liked that, um, looking at the characteristics of animals and particularly the cat one is the one looking for the weaknesses and, you know, a cat is always going to find something to knock off the table. And if you didn't Absolutely. want it knocked off the table, you didn't design it properly. <laughs> exactly. I really liked that. Um, is, is it possible, do you think, for people to change the space that they hold? Like if you start start holding one space, can you move out of that space into another space, into the characteristics of another animal? Can people hold more than one of those spaces in the team? So um, a- absolutely, in fact. So when I was running um, – so you, uh, often I'll run very short group projects, so two, three-week-long projects, and then you would stay in one role. But in my fourth year, of course – I ran the group across the entire semester. And so halfway through, we told them to change roles, right? So people would have to play against what they had originally decided they wanted to be. Um, Also, when you have smaller groups in six, so if you've got a group of four, um, I did this classic D&D thing of dual classing, right? So you can be two things, right? So you can be a puppy bear, Right. So you're the leader and you're also really enthusiastic about everybody's ideas. Right. I won't let someone dual class wolf and bear because they're supposed to argue against each other and that you can't. It's really hard to manage that yourself. And being a cat and a puppy is really hard. We are really, really negative, but also enthusiastic about everything. It's kind of uh, it's an odd role. But the rest of them, you can multi-class. Um, it's also really interesting looking at, at group dynamics. Um, so what I get people to do is I get everybody to choose what role they want to play in the project, right? So I separate everybody into those six different roles. And usually you find there's some imbalance. Often there aren't enough bears because most people don't see themselves as leaders. And so you're going to have to ask some people to step up. Um, the The most sort of, of collected I had was a group of occupational therapists in, in Norway. They were a graduate program for OTs, for occupational therapists, and they were sixty. They were fifty percent cats. Half the group were cats, and it was kind of <laughs> wow. Okay, hmm. Um, but and so what I did is I went to them and said, look, okay, for this project, right, for this length of time, I need some of you to to be able to role play a different role because the group needs you to do this, right? And so yes, exactly. I, I get people to to step up to a role that they may not see themselves naturally in but that's an opportunity to learn how to play that role you give them instruction on how that role fits with with the rest of the the groups and you know i did things like at, at the break times at lunches and an afternoon tea i get all the bears to go and sit together i get all of the wolves to get together else to sit together so they could talk about their place in the group and the groups could share ideas between them so rather than kind of forcing everybody to stay in the same groups, I would intermingle them that way. So the groups would have a way of communicating with each other and you'd get to learn about those roles. So even if you weren't comfortable that that's who you were, you could listen to other people who said they were an owl. And so you could listen to the way they were managing their groups. Um, and actually, honestly, it, it it helped my relationship with my wife because it wasn't until I created the six animal system and I created the motivations around the cat I went, oh, my wife's not negative and critical of me. She wants me to succeed by telling me what's wrong. Because <laughs> as a puppy, it felt like she was just being down on all my cool ideas, right? Because I've got all these great ideas. And she was saying, oh, but what about this? And what about this? And what about this? And it was kind of, 
why do you bring me down all the time? And, and it wasn't until I went, oh, all right, you want this to succeed. You want that to work. And to make it work, you want to remove the things that will make me fail. And so you're not trying to stop me. You're trying to help me. And once I realized that, I could actually go, oh, no, I now appreciate why you're saying these things rather than just teaching it to trying to stop the project and being negative. Are some of your ideas <laughs> a catapult to serve breakfast? <laughs> um, I, I, I haven't done the catapult to serve breakfast, though. We did. I did look at trains and my dad built a train set to deliver breakfast. So he built a, a, a train set from the kitchen into the lounge that you put the plates on and the, the, those drove. And when we were in Prague, we did go to the um, restaurant that serves all of its meals by train. Um, so, so no, I, though, um, I, the, there are lots of catapult ideas, but yes, none of them, none of them are safe. So <laughs> I know that they're not safe. Before you were talking about a book that you've got to write, is this the book? Oh, yeah. It, well, it's a book um, that I need to write. Actually, I've got yeah, two books. I've got a collaborator in, in the in the US, um, one of the uh, long-term game developers. Um, she's been in the industry for about 35 years now uh, on tutorials and how people learn to play games. So I've, I've started that book with her and we need to, to finish it. Um, the book I want to write is around rethinking the way that we do education uh, and looking at how so like there are so many parts to creating good games. And so it, it's everything from saying we we shouldn't be teaching students to answer questions. We should be teaching students to ask questions. So I'm looking at how do you evaluate the question quality? So another example of that is to say, well, you know, if we had um, a 20 question style exam where I have the knowledge and your job is to extract that knowledge from me with the quality of the questions you ask me, right? because I'm not interested in what's currently in your head. I'm interested in your ability to extract knowledge from your world. And so it's kind of that whole reversing of the relationship between how we assess students and moving to a, a, an agreed assessment model, which I already do with my students, where they are choosing how they should be assessed. Right? So I did this with one of my third year classes. Um, at the beginning of the course, I said, right, how do you want to be assessed? When do you want to be assessed? What kind of feedback do you want? Um, and I said, there's a limit. We have to have at least one assessment activity. Uh, and they chose the 24-hour the take-home exam. Um, and... and uh, they they set the topics and I set the questions. Right? So they said, we will be assessed on this topic and this topic and this topic. And I said, right, okay, I'll ask a question in that area. And we did that by, you know, the first part of the exam was them actually exploring and they included their Google search in their exam to say how they found out about the thing they're doing. Uh, I did a 72-hour take-home exam where the first 24 hours of the 72-hour exam was the whole class working together to understand the problem. And so they all had shared repos up to that point. And then once, and, and I would check that they all understood the questions and they all understood what they're going to do. And we had open dialogue, right? Where I was had open dialogue with the class up to that 24 hour period. And then they would separate and do their own part of the functioning project. So you didn't get that kind of, oh, I'm stuck. I don't understand the question. 
I got unlucky that I tried to do something that wasn't reasonable. And so it was more about us working together to extend them than it was me assessing them kind of in isolation. So, yeah, just trying to rethink education to say it shouldn't just be this kind of gate that you have to try and pass through or over or under. It should be a process that I'm with you on. There's this game I played with a family recently. We went to some friend's house for dinner and they played this game where we had to put a headband on and you had a card that you put in the headband and you had to ask questions of everybody. And, uh, what was it called, Karen? It's called headbands. My friend's oh, headband. actually listening okay. to this interview. Headband, right. it was called. Right. You um, had to ask questions um, of everybody else and they could only answer with a yes or no. But what was really right. interesting was watching the kids and their inability to ask the right kind of questions that really blew me away because I thought they would nail it but actually oh. they, they were terrible yeah no that's why we have to teach them to do this right I mean and and the unfortunately we've fallen down a hole where we think like and it's true a good teacher right so a good teacher of a of a 10 year old or a five-year-old can take an absolutely atrocious question like the question why, right? Which is an incredibly weak question with no context and no reference points. I don't know what you're asking about. I don't know the level that I'm supposed to give detail of. I have nothing from the question why. They take that question by knowing the student and knowing the subject and knowing the context, they're able to produce a good answer to a horrible question, right? And so... Unfortunately, good teachers are really good at that. And students learn the facts and they learn things by asking really bad questions, which doesn't necessarily teach them how to ask better questions. Right? Mm -hmm. And so I, I, I think although you can handhold, and I see this at university, although you can handhold people through to get good grades and have lots of stored knowledge, that doesn't necessarily mean that when they leave, they've got the tools to ask those high quality questions that eliminate the things that that um, you need to kind of get rid of and say, well, how do I ask a question that divides the world in half, that separates things that I know so, so I can separate the world? I know I, I do this with my third years quite a bit in our user testing. Right? It's, it, I, I work very hard on them to ask actionable questions. When you ask a user a question, you've got to have an idea of what you're going to do with the answer. Right? If they mm. say yes, you're going to go down one path. If they say no, you're going to go a different path. So you can't just ask, do you like the product? Because what are you going to do if they say no, they don't like it? It's kind of, well, eh? are you going to do anything different? If they say yes, what are you going to do differently? It's kind of, it's not that useful. If you're a marketer, you're going to work out whether you can sell the product or not. But as a developer, that doesn't help me. I need to ask questions that I can action the answers to. And, the, and, and you know, kids are terrible. And yet and one of the problems I have is that, you know, kids ask lots of questions when they're, when they're small. Right? Um, and I remember with my daughter, so I had a policy of I, I never block the answer to a question. So when my, my daughter would ask why, I would give her a reason. And she'd say, why? And I'd give her the next level of reason. And then why the next level of reason? And so occasionally we'd get to the um, conservation of angular momentum um, was one where we got, why does the sun, why, yeah, why does the sun set? And, you know, it takes you a while, about sort of 20 odd questions to get to 
conservation of angular momentum, but that's where you get to. Why is that? Happen? Oh, it's just a fundamental principle of the universe. Sorry, I can't go any further. Um, but, you know, I, I think t I, I counted 27 was the longest question sequence where we just kept going with the next question. Um, so kids are really good at asking questions. And then with PhD students, the whole point is to ask a really good question, right? And we spend lots of time working out your research questions. So we go from, you were asking lots of really terrible questions to you've got to ask one really, really good question. And in between, we stop you asking questions. It's crazy. That's not the path. You don't go from lots and lots to one by, by stopping. You're supposed to encourage them to improve the quality of their questions. So, so yeah, that's what I think some of the education is missing. There was recently, I was working with a learner from a different school and she um, was, it was her final assignment and she had run out of time and she said, if only there was a way I could do this um, differently, I can't write 3,000 words in this time. And I said, well, what could you do? She said, I could speak 3,000 words. So I said, well, why don't you contact them and, and ask if you can make an oral submission and record it, put it on YouTube and that's your submission done. And she goes, but they'll say no. And I said, well, how do you know? So we there's, there's, there's the answer that encouraging the right answering of questions, developing those skills, but there's also having the courage to actually ask those things and push the boundaries. And there's a gap there as well, that confidence that you don't have to just do it the prescribed way. There are other ways you can do it. Oh, absolutely, and and, and um, so one of one of the other things, again, as part of this book, I need to write, um, is is accurate confidence, because the the problem we have is that often when we when you go down the the mindfulness and confidence route, people treat it as a kind of one size fits all, and so they tell people to be more confident, and we already have a group of students who are too confident, right? So there's a bunch of Dunning-Kruger effect that I measure in some of my assessments where I, I explicitly include confidence in your grading, in the grading system. And so what I need to be able to do is accurately identify where people are less confident than they should be given their ability and point to evidence to say, look, you are under you're, you are underconfident because you are not as stupid as you think you are, right? You are much better than that, right? <laughs> Um, and there are other students who say, well, you need to stop and think and ask other people questions and have less confidence in your vague idea of an answer. Right? And so it's about finding the right level of confidence and having the right having having accurate confidence in your knowledge tells you when to ask a question. Right. Because if you if you're accurate, you know when you know things and you know when you don't know something. Right. And so for for your your um, the girl you're talking about, she didn't actually know they would say no. Right. She guessed they would say no. But what evidence she, did you have that they would say no? Um, and so, you know, having having accurate assessment of your knowledge and also having that the right level of confidence is it's really critical. Um, and so I think I think we need to, to personalize those messages to individuals. I need to squeeze in Led Zeppelin. So I'm going to squeeze in Led Zeppelin Immigrant Song.
Simon, we've seen lots of changes in society over the last couple of years. What do you think is going to stick? And perhaps more importantly, what do you hope will stick? I hope flexibility in remote working will stick. Um, I think the being able to be with your family and not having to commute is, is fabulous. I think flexibility to live where you want to live rather than be forced to live in the centre of a massive city. Um, technology, a lot of people have learned how to use technology uh, and I think that knowledge isn't going to disappear. So I think that, that will stay and I hope it stays. Um, and I think... One of the things I'd like to say, and I don't know if it will, is that there was more forgiveness. So if people were late with something or something couldn't be done, it wasn't the end of the world because we all learned, oh, some things just can't get done. Um, and so I think there was a, a, a an increase in flexibility and kindness to each other that I'd like to stay. I don't know that it will, but I really like it too. What lessons do you think we can take from the pandemic and the pandemic response for the bigger sorts of questions we face? I'm thinking of things like climate change and social justice. Well, I think the first message is we can act collectively um, when when given a, an immediate threat. Uh, I think it's clear that if you work collectively and you don't rely on individuals, uh, you get more more done and, and you get it done in a better way. So I think we, it's clear that collective action is our only way through these massive challenges. Um, and I think we learned that, that um, unfettered capitalism results in a lot of people dying. Should we be gamifying the behaviour change that we want people to make, like wearing masks? Or should we just be doing oh, it? There are, yeah, well, there, there are plenty of things you can gamify, though... I know, and I, I worked a wee bit with the um, COVID tracing app people and I tried to work on their gamification um, when they're doing COVID tracing and we're trying to get regional um, uh, kind of leaderboards so you could compete. But um, the problem is if you gamify, you risk changing people's motivation. So while people are motivated by caring for other people, gamifying will damage that and so you don't want to do it. It's only once you've moved out of the intrinsic motivator and people are no longer doing something because they don't have that intrinsic motivation that you can start looking at saying, well, can we bring in a gamification extrinsic motivator, something that will help people re-engage um, with the activity? So you've got to time your gamification correctly. So I have some questions to end the show with and like negative time to ask them. So we're going to have to go real quick. What's the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? creating a game course at victoria so i've got a whole three-year game degree i can teach cool we're writing a book of these conversations it's called tomorrow's heroes you are in that team what's your superpower talking do you consider yourself to be an activist oh yes yes i do what for um, so I'm currently pushing through changing the way we fund universities through the Labour Party. So I've got it through to into the policy now. And so I have to re um, so I'm going to try and join policy council and, and rewrite the education funding policy for the Labour Party so I can change the way universities work. Good work. What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? <laughs> My children get me out of bed in the morning. Um, oh, you know, I, I 
I enjoy living. I enjoy being around my family. I enjoy seeing students learn. Um, I enjoy challenging, my, challenging myself to do interesting and new things. What is the biggest challenge that you're looking forward to in the next year or two? Changing education policy, um, changing the university as a whole relationship with uh, carbon footprint. So on the uh, university um, air travel consortium, where we're trying to change universities and academics to take carbon footprint seriously and make sure that we become carbon negative and lead in that space. It's looked pretty good for the last couple of years. Oh, it's, it's been great. But, but unfortunately, the academics want to get back yes. to massive <laughs> international travel. And it's kind of, oh, my God, the footprint. No. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Look for the positives, right? Um, I, I think if you try and understand what motivates people and when they argue with you or when they're, you know, when they seem to be just kind of opposing you for no reason, if you find their motivation and say, well, actually, most of the time people are actually, they're trying to achieve something and usually the deep motivation is a good one. It's just that what they're doing isn't quite the way that you think it should be done. And maybe they don't have the same information that you have. So trying to be kind to people and, and help them become enlightened rather than just argue with them and get angry at them. Thank you for that. Moira. Simon, we could have had you on for three shows. Um, that was fascinating. Thank you very much for uh, all the work that you're doing, in particular um, the way that you're helping people to learn how to think effectively because somewhere in that lies the solution to all the things that ail us. Um, keep up the good work. We appreciate you and thanks for joining us today. Kia Thank you. Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. Brought to you by the Sustainable Lens Team, which is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic. We are broadcast on Otago Access Radio every Monday, Wednesday and Friday afternoons at 3 and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz. You can find us on Facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We had a contribution today from Tahu McKenzie. This is Hildegard von Blingen, Jolene. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, with Mawera Karatai in Fakatane. And from Mosgiel, we've been joined by Simon McCallum. That was Blowing Bubbles. We hope you enjoyed the show.
This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.